Well, if you go, go on the internet, there's lots of uh, people out there that would like to offer you some advice. And perhaps on occasion, when you're looking for some how-to advice, you might type into Google, how to fix my car, how to potty train a baby, how to plant a tree. If you type those kinds of things in, you might find yourself being led to WikiHow. Have you ever been there? WikiHow. Now, WikiHow is a website that is designed to answer all of your how-to questions. But unfortunately, many of the articles on that website are poisonous. They're ungodly, they're wicked, they're evil. For example, you can go on WikiHow and type in how to lie, and it will give you a, quite a lengthy article teaching you how to lie. You can type in how to steal a boat, and it will give you a lengthy article on how to steal a boat. You can type in how to be vaccinated without telling my parents, and it'll coach a, a minor how to lie to their parent and, and conceal what they're actually doing and make up an alibi or manufacture a story in order to lie to your parents. And then there's another article I noticed called How to Be a Good Example, and I thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder what they're going to say about this. How to be a good example. What does it say? And I just kind of went through the article real quick, and there was a couple good points in there about looking for a role model, but there was also some poison in there. Nestled among these good points was advice like, well, determine what a good person means to you personally. Just like decide for yourself what a good example is. That's not good advice. Or another piece of advice is, well, just, just stop comparing yourself to others. Or love yourself. Or be yourself. Now, if you break down that kind of advice, there's several problems associated with it. There's some questions that they're trying to answer that are, are not answered well with that kind of advice. For example, is being a good example self-determined? Is that what a good example is? Do we all just get to decide what a good example is? Maybe, I'll use a ridiculous illustration, maybe for you being a good example is being a thief or a murderer. Well, you just decide it for yourself. Maybe being a good example is following in the footsteps of Christ. Well, just decide it for yourself. Is it adequate for us to just decide for ourselves what a good example is? Or is self-affirmation really the way forward? Is that really the way forward? We hear it, but is that really the way forward? If, another question would be, am I even capable of being a good example in the absence of a benchmark? You know what a benchmark is? Surveyors use it to determine elevations. So when this auditorium and hallway was built a couple years ago and all of the parking lots were reconfigured and lowered and raised so that the water would run off the property. When they first came to survey the property, they were looking for what's called a benchmark. And apparently on one of the old telephone poles along the road, there was just a little tag that was nailed in. That's the surveyor's benchmark. But the poles had been removed, so we didn't have a benchmark. So they had to come back and over by the ditch, they, they carved a little X in a piece of concrete. And off of that X, that stable benchmark, that point, they determined all the elevations for why this floor is this height, for why the parking lot slopes that way and this way and the height of the curbs. All of that was contingent upon a benchmark. Well, in the word of God, Jesus Christ is our benchmark. He's the one that determines what a good example is or a bad example is. 
You don't just get yourself into a lotus position and hum and hope that you can figure it out for yourself. You don't just look within. Well, what do I, what do I think is a good example? I, I don't know. There's not a lot going on there apart from Christ. So Jesus is our benchmark, but as Pastor Chris mentioned earlier, and we shouldn't be shy about this or embarrassed by this, Christ often passes on to us in a very practical incarnational way what his virtues and values look like in space and time through our relationships with one another. So let's not be so super spiritual to say, well, no, we just look to Jesus. We don't pay attention to pastors and youth leaders and small group leaders or parents. Yeah, that's, that's ungodly. We look to Christ as our ultimate benchmark, but in the body of Christ, God gives us examples to follow. And if you've been a Christian for a little while, you're supposed to be one of those examples for others to follow. If you've been a Christian for a week, we don't have a lot of expectations of you yet. But if you've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever it might be, your job is to be a good example to others. And so in this passage, we learn what it means to be, to live a worthy life. And in order to help us to understand what it means to be a worthy Christian that's, that's worthy of the praise and honor of God, he gives us some tangible examples. We're gonna learn from two people that were living for Christ. Not, they weren't perfect. Okay? Nobody, nobody is perfect. We all have flaws. We all know it. We all have errors in our lives. But God gives us examples to follow. We're gonna look at Philippians chapter two, verses 19 to 30. And there's two people here that the apostle Paul points us to as good examples that lived a worthy life. The first one is Timothy. And the second one is Epaphroditus. By the way, that's not a bad name for you to consider. We like to name our children after godly people. And there's lots of Timothys, but maybe we need to re- you know, reinstall the word Epaphroditus into our baby names. It's kind of a cool name. I'll make it teased for it a little bit, but it's kind of a cool name. This is a good example for Christ. So again, just so you're clear, our ultimate example is Jesus. We know that, but human examples matter too. And throughout history, God has given us some great examples of faithfulness that we can look to and honor in order to strengthen our faith. So some worthy examples to follow that help us to live worthy lives. I wanna look at this in, in, in a couple of, using an overarching question. What does a worthy example look like? So it's like, tell me pastor, very practically, this is gonna be a very practical sermon. What does a worthy example look like? Very practically, what are some characteristics? of a person that is following the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark. It answers that question. So let me read for you the whole of Philippians chapter two, verse 19, and we'll end at verse 30. Here's what the word of God says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, Paul is writing from jail, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him. Now this word no one like him means no one of equal soul. So it's not just his external behavior that Paul is setting before us as a good example, but it is his character. So character matters, not just what you do, but who you are. Let's not bifurcate between the two. He's a, he's a, there's no one of equal soul to Timothy. Why? It says who will be genuinely, I love that word, 
Authenticity is really important. Concern for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This is all the people you've been mentioning earlier that you know, were in the preaching business and in the ministry business. And they might've been saying the right thing, but you just, you got this sense they weren't really in it for Christ. It was about self-aggrandizement, self-glory, but not Timothy. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, key phrase, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. He was waiting to, to, to see whether or not he was going to be lettered of jail. Evidently, he probably got some word that there was going to be some verdict issued soon. By the way, sometimes Paul lost in court, sometimes he won. Jesus lost in court, so there's no guarantees that we'll win or lose. But they're faithful nevertheless. And then in verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also uh, will come also. So then verse 25 says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So this is guy number two. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all. And then just listen to this. This is, this is pretty, a pretty incredible guy. Look, look at how it describes him. He's been longing for you all. And he has been distressed. Why has he been distressed? Because you heard that he was ill. Isn't that interesting? He was upset that you found out that he wasn't doing so well. This is how selfless this man was. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also me, me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So we have two examples. We have Timothy and we have Epaphroditus. And these are men that are described in the text as brothers, fellow workers, and fellow soldiers. And they were being sent by Paul. Paul was still in prison. This is one of his prison epistles in order to build up the church. By the way, Paul's the third great example in this text because he is in jail for the cause of Christ and he's still trying to provide some sort of pastoral leadership over the church that was free, but was vulnerable to spiritual demise. So let's look at the text again. And I wanna share with you a few worthy qualities to imitate that we see in these men's lives. The first one is found in verse 20, and that is genuine concern for the welfare of others. This should mark all of us. Genuine concern for the welfare of others. By nature, we are genuinely very much concerned about self. But we're called by Christ to increasingly become genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. This answers the question, what is my goal in life? What is my goal? Well, in part, it's to be genuinely concerned with the welfare of others. Jesus was like that. Timothy was like that. Epaphroditus was like that. They didn't seek their own interests. 
They were genuinely caring. They genuinely sought what was best for the Christian churches they were overseeing. They weren't motivated as so many fake televangelists and false teachers have been throughout time by carnality, by power, by money. We denounce those things, but by contrast, instead of seeking their, their own interests, look at verse 21, in contrast to these men, there are others that it said basically are seeking their own interests. No, these men sought the interest of others. And folks, this should, this should cause us to self-assess. We want to be outgoing and engaged and actively involved in ministry, but let's not overlook the need to self-assess. As we read the scriptures, as we pray, Lord, is there anything in me that's still kind of immature? Why do I do what I do? Why do I serve in the way that I serve? Is it, is it feeding some carnality? Do I, do I do it for to please men because I don't feel good about myself unless people pat me on the back? Am I doing it so that I can get something or am I genuinely concerned for the welfare of others? By the way, this principle applies to all relationships. You'll never be healthy in your marriage unless you're married primarily for the benefit and welfare of the other. You'll be a rotten employee unless you do it for the benefit and welfare of the company. You'll be a rotten mother or father unless you understand that you're going to serve your children, your family. You're going to burn the calories. You're going to spend the money. You're going to take the time. You're going to have the hard conversations. You're going to suffer at times for the cause of Christ. And by the way, you might be patted on the back one day and kicked in the pants the next. But you do it for the honor and glory of Christ. And Timothy sets that example for us, and it's a worthy example for us to follow. Secondly, a proven track record. This answers the question, what's my history like? What's my testimony? What's my track record like? It says that he had a proven track record. We all have a track record, but is it proven? Meaning, does it have some longevity attached to it? Are we marked by perseverance? Are we the kind of people that are willing to stick it out? Serving the cause of Christ at times is going to be like the best thing on earth. It's going to be wonderful. It's like, I love this. And other times I hate this. (laughs) This is tough. I don't want this. This isn't fun. This doesn't feel good. This is keeping me up at night. And again, it can, it can flip on a dime, folks. It can be Sunday's awesome. Monday just feels like hell, depending on what's happening in the world and in your life and your ministry. You stick it out. You don't give up. You don't give in. You don't tap out. And over time, your ministry expands. People start to trust you more, and they start to believe that what you're preaching and teaching and living out is actually true because you have a proven track record. Too many people start, stop, start, stop, start, stop in marriage, start, stop in ministry, start, stop in work. They don't have perseverance. They don't have grit. It's like, nice guy, but I don't really trust him. But Timothy stuck it out. He had a proven track record. He served the gospel for long enough to prove his worth. He understood the value of Long-term ministry. And I know a lot of pastors 
that basically shoot themselves in both feet. Because as soon as something gets tough in the church, suddenly they're called elsewhere. The Lord's called us elsewhere. And if, the, if, if you follow the averages, Chris and I did a podcast, mentioned this this week. Most pastors stay in a church for between three and seven years, and then they're gone. Called elsewhere. Oh, it's interesting. You're called to a bigger ministry with more money. Hmm, that's interesting. Notice God never tends to call people down. No? Look, folks, I can tell you this. There, throughout life, people always offer you greener pastures on either side of the hill or other side of the fence. And if you spend your life just climbing the hill to get over to the other side or jumping the fence, once you get there, you're like, eh, it's not greener after all. Life is largely marked by carnal, carnal desires and dreams. We follow them, we pursue them, and it's always anticlimactic on the other side. But if we stick it out, God does an amazing work in us and he allows us to bear fruit for his honor and for his glory. And the fruit that you bear is, is not gonna be, don't, don't, don't compare yourself with other people. For some, you might get a bushel basket full of fruit. For some, you might get a dump truck, right? Maybe because there's only one tree in the neighborhood or maybe because there's an orchard. So it depends on the population, the people you're ministering to, the culture you're in, the time in history. It doesn't matter. You just maximize your gifts and potential for the glory and honor of God and let him bring the increase and make sure you have a proven track record. I remember when I was in Bible college, one of the things that would kind of get under my skin is you'd have students that were in Bible college studying five days a week in class, writing papers, writing assignments, and then they didn't bother going to church on Sunday. These are guys that were training for ministry. Oh, we don't have time for that. We got to study. Oh, we got to sleep in on Sunday. It's like, are you kidding me? You're training to be a pastor, a missionary, and you don't even go to church on Sunday? These guys don't last. They don't have a proven track record. They think that somehow if you get a diploma or a certificate, that that qualifies you to lead people. No, it doesn't. Your proven track record qualifies you to lead people. And the longer you serve and the more you persevere, the more expansive your ministry will become. So instead of bouncing from church to church or job to job or marriage to marriage, stick it out. Learn the benefit of long-term commitment in ministry and the Lord will bless you. This is a quality worth imitating. And then we have a third quality here, empathy and affection. So this answers the question, what is my heart like? What's my heart like? Timothy longed to be with God's people. It wasn't like, oh, Lord, the alarm went off. It's Sunday. Oh, or it's Friday night. I got to serve the punks at harvest in the youth group. No. Or yet another worship practice. No, he, he loved people. He, he was a people person. And he was, this is now talking about Paphroditus, by the way. He was distressed at hearing that the church heard that he was ill. Most of us, if we're ill, we're like, well, I hope you're praying for me. <laughs> he didn't even want people to know. He was like anything but a glory hog. And by the way, interesting point here. We believe in divine healing in our church. We believe that God, by his sovereign grace, can heal anybody under any circumstances that he wants. What we don't believe is that healing is guaranteed or automatic. 
This is Paul, folks. Paul could raise dead people, but he couldn't heal Epaphroditus. Eventually, Epaphroditus was healed, but not right now. He almost died. So we shouldn't be teaching people, well, if you know Jesus or you believe in divine healing, it's automatic. Anytime the preacher says you're healed, you're healed. No, no. God uses human instruments at times, but God is the divine physician. And sometimes he heals and sometimes he doesn't. At some point in your life, even if you've been healed, you won't be healed anymore because you'll be dead, right? So at some point, even if you've been healed multiple times, God's like, yeah, not this time. I'm calling you home. So that's just a little sidebar that I, that I think is important to remember. But one of the things we need to draw from Epaphroditus's life is he wasn't an attention seeker. In fact, he was mildly awkward when he received, felt a little awkward when he received too much attention from other people. And I think that's a good thing to have in our lives as well. And then verse 30, he was willing to risk his life for others. So this answers the question, what am I actually willing to pay to serve the cause of Christ? Have you answered that question yourself yet? What am I willing to pay to serve the purposes of Christ? I think what God does is he tests us in little ways, then a little bit bigger ways, then a little bit greater ways, commensurate to our maturity. And if we pass the test and he tests us a little bit more, we're being tested. Remember I said to you last year, they were coming for me. Now they're coming for you, right? And it wouldn't surprise me that they'll come for your children next. And they'll just keep coming for you because the world is bent on destruction because it's a spiritually charged world. The devil hates our guts. We're in a spiritual battle. And it's not going to let up. And some of you have been tested. You're being tested right now. Are you going to stick with your principles? Or are you going to capitulate? Are you going to stick with your values? Or are you going to capitulate? Are you going to bow and buckle? Are you going to give in? If you do and you're like, well, I had to because, well, I still have a job. I can still travel. I still feel safe. Folks, you're not, you're not safe because it's going to happen again and it's going to happen again. And at some point you're like, no, this is my line. And no matter the cost, I'm not going to cross the line. And by the way, generally when you do that, <laughs> it postures to the world, don't mess with this man or woman. Why well, keep picking on him? But if you just keep buckling, bowing, complying, surrendering. Well, at some point it comes back to bite you. So I'm just throwing that out because we need to ask ourselves for the cause of Christ, things we believe in, what price are we actually prepared to, to pay? I'm sure we've all heard sermons on martyrs, you know, people that were strapped to stakes and firewood was put at their feet oil was doused on them and they were burnt alive for Christ. And we hear these stories of them singing hymns as they're dying and all that sort of thing. And we have this idea, I think I could do the same thing. You know? uh, that, that would be me. You know, if I was put up against a wall and asked to denounce Christ, I'd be like, pull the trigger. Right? We have these high fluting ideas of how tough we are. And then someone coerces us or manipulates us a little bit. We're like, okay, I give in. The Lord is testing us and we need to develop resolve and perseverance and grit. And by the way, that grit grows when we observe other people with grit. When we're like, man, Paphroditus had grit and Justin Martyr had grit and John Calvin had grit. 
and Billy Graham had grit, and my mentor in the faith has grit. We see it in Christ, of course, but we also see that quality being manifested in others. Epaphroditus was able to risk his life to get the message out, and so should we. These are worthy qualities for us to imitate. I have a little, thank you for the plaque, by the way. I have another little plaque in my office. Someone gave it to me probably 20, 25, 30 years ago. And it has carved on it these words. He who walks with wise men will be wise. That's a Bible verse. Proverbs 13, 20. And it reminds us that so much of our faith is an imitative faith. The Christian faith is an imitative faith. And if you're around wise people and people with grit or people with perseverance, it rubs off on you. So by the way, we have to be careful who we keep company with for the majority of our week. If we just spend our time with cowards and compromisers, not that we shouldn't be around them for the purpose of ministry, but if we spend our time with cowards and compromisers or godless people, it'll rub off. Good lesson for young people. By the way, I was a youth pastor for a long time. And one of the things that we used to help the kids to work through is the infamous issue of peer pressure. Remember that? Peer pressure. How to resist peer pressure. You don't have come to determine. That doesn't go away when you hit 20. We're all subject to peer pressure throughout the duration of our lives. The question is, what kind of peers do you surround yourself with? So whether you're young, middle-aged, old, whatever you might be, be careful who you keep company with. Be careful who you spend the majority of your time with. Be careful who you allow to influence you because people, by necessity, every relationship is influential. And it's either going to influence you for the better or for the worst. So make sure that you're surrounding yourself with courageous people or if you identify other deficits in your life. Prayerlessness, let's say. Hang out with prayerful people. Or if you want to be a better evangelist, hang out with people that are good evangelists. He who walks with wise men will be wise. So these are four qualities we learn from Timothy and from Epaphroditus. And the second part here is, what do we do with that? We want to be a blessing to worthy people. So it's not just a one-way street where we're being blessed, we're being blessed, we're learning, we're teaching, you know, this, we're, we're being taught. We also want to be a blessing to worthy people. And there's a couple things in, in this passage that point us in that direction. So if you look at verse 19, we want to give them cheer. Paul's like, I'm sending Timothy and I hope he brings back a message that cheers me up. So this is a, a lesson for us to be responsive to those who minister to us. Because our turn might come too. Paul was in jail, but he wanted his jail sentence to be worth it. I think we're all kind of aware of this, that let's, let's take children for an example, because this is something we can all relate to, because we're all either ch children or have been children or we're parents. And we understand how much time and energy parents pour out on their children with very little return in order to see their children become mature, functional disciples of Christ. It's pretty much a one-way street for a long time. You're just pouring out money, pouring out time, pouring out your sleep patterns, pouring everything out, and hoping, I hope this is worth it, you know? 
I hope we get a good product out of this. We understand that. But we're, we're apt to do it if we're like, I think this is going to work out. I think I'm going to get a, a functional adult out of this. <laughs> I, 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 could, I see hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. This, this person is growing. I can see step by step. They're growing. They're getting it. They're you know, doing well at, in their educational studies. They're growing in Christ. They're being responsible. They're learning. They've come to Christ. You know, we're, we do it because we're seeing that incremental growth. And it's the same in ministry. It's very hard to see spiritual fruit in the moment. But when you can look back five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, you're like, I, I can tell you story after story after story. Susie and I were just chatting on the drive-in today. I asked her, you know, what are some of the things that you found to be most joyful about the past 20 years? And then she shared a few things and I shared a few things. And I said, one of the things that I've enjoyed the most, I've enjoyed seeing people saved and baptized, but I've really enjoyed seeing people whose lives have fallen apart, who've compromised, who've fallen into sin, being restored. That's incredible to see. Marriage is put back together. People cast off their addictions. Relationships brought back together. That's, that's really cool. There's just something really special about that. But you don't see that in the moment when you're in the office and you're exercising church discipline. It's like, this is hopeless. <laughs> this isn't going to work out well. And then over time, you have to stick it out. And over time, you see repentance. This is an incredible thing. So we want to be responsive to those that minister to us so that they can look back over the long haul and say, wow, this was worth it. So whenever you're ministered to, don't throw away the lessons that God wants you to learn. When I was a kid, I got to be honest, we were, we were in some churches that were very faithful, but the preaching was drier than straw. The music was drier than straw. And one of the things, I don't know if someone told me this or God just laid it upon my heart, but I remember when I was fairly young, I just said, you know what? Regardless of the capacity of the communicator or the musicians, I want to take something home every single time I'm in the class or I'm listening to the sermon or I'm singing the songs. I, I, don't, I never want a class in Bible college, a Sunday morning service, a youth group event to be a waste of my time. I want to take one thing home. It, well, I, I might be taking home something like, man, I would never do it that way. <laughs> but I'm still taking some lesson home. And this, is, this should be our mindset. We should all be willing to listen and to learn. I, I enjoy sitting out in the chairs on occasion and just listening to Blake preach, believe it or not. Yeah. Where is Blake? Is he here? Okay, there he is. Yeah. Just giving him a little elbow jab there. I enjoy hearing younger men preach, new preachers preach. I benefit from that. I was blessed yesterday hearing a message from Pastor Allen from another church at our conference, hearing Laura testify, hearing people ask questions. Blessed by that. So when we're being ministered to, don't, don't throw it away. Be responsive, responsive to the ministry that you're receiving. Same thing in your family, young people. If you're still at, at home, your parents aren't perfect. Okay, They've never been parents before. You're their experiment. 
Um, we all go into parenting completely incompetent. And around the time we're figuring it out, you're moving out. Your time will come, Lord willing, and you'll have to go through the same thing. But instead of picking on your parents, well, my parents, you've got this issue or that issue, learn what you can from your parents. Learn the good lessons, learn the bad lessons, and your turn will come to put it into practice instead of being habitually rebellious or reluctant. Embrace whatever lessons your parents can teach you. May you be a cheery person to them. And then finally, we have this lesson, honoring worthy people in verse 29. It says, receive them. And then it says, receive them in the Lord. So this is the difference between a sociologically beneficial relationship and a spiritually beneficial relationship. Our relationships are not just sociological. Oh, I'd like to get to know you because you can benefit my life. Oh, you can, maybe you'll increase my social status or my financial status or whatever it might be. Our relationships are in the Lord, in the Lord. There's a spiritual mantle over all of our relationships. We are all under Christ. And therefore, if you are in the Lord and I'm in the Lord, we can benefit and bless one another. One of the things I do love about church is the diversity of people that come. Now, we, we love each other, right? Hopefully, we like each other too. That'd be a bonus. But sociologically, if this was just a sociological thing, we, most of us probably wouldn't be here, maybe none of us. Because by nature, we tend to associate with people that are like-minded. In fact, it's just part of us. We walk into a room and we're like, who looks like me, who's kind of at my stage and age in life and you know, who kind of has the same economic status as I do. That's what we're like. So most people in society, their friends are you know, just a few years older or a few years younger, oftentimes of the same ethnicity, kind of in the same socioeconomic strata, more or less at the same stage in life because it's just a sociologically beneficial relationship. So if you got young kids, well, I want to find some friends that have young kids because then our kids can play together. And we're kind of at the same age and stage in life. That's not how we roll in the church. In the church, you should have friends that are 50 years older than you and maybe 50 years younger than you. You should have friends with people who are in very different situations than you are, who don't look like you, who maybe don't, weren't raised in the same country as you were. Why? We benefit from one another because what binds us together is not our age or stage of life. It's we're in the Lord. We're in the Lord. I don't know how old Timothy was here or Epaphroditus was here or what their ethnicities were in relationship to all the people in the church, but it's it's not talked about. In fact, the Bible rarely talks about things like ethnicity or socioeconomic status or marital status or how many kids you have, the kind of stuff that interests us or what school you went to or what football team you cheer for. It just doesn't talk about that. It's just in the Lord. They're in the Lord. So he says, receive them in the Lord. So we need to demonstrate hospitality to those that are in the Lord. We need to let them minister to us because we're in the Lord. We need to minister to them because they're in the Lord and you're in the Lord. Make their jobs a joy, not a drag, because you're in the Lord. And together, regardless of your age, your stage, where you're at in life, we want to build one another up to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So is Jesus your benchmark, folks? If he is, 
that Jesus will send people into your life to help you, even in 2021, long after he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He will, ascend people, he will send people into your life to, to help you to see what it means to live incarnationally, to live out the values and virtues of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many years ago, I remember one of my professors giving this real nugget of truth. He says, you know, if you're preaching Daniel, for example, if you're preaching from Daniel, what you don't want to do when you're preaching about Daniel is just say, hey, church, you know what we should do? We should all be like Daniel and then just leave people there. He says, don't do that because that's man-centered. That's a horizontal sermon. It's like, dare to be a Daniel, dare to serve the king, or whatever. Don't just leave people with a message, well, be like Daniel. And I don't want to leave you with a message, well, just, just be like Timothy. Or just be like Epaphroditus. I want you to see this, the vertical nature of their ministry. And it says in verse 27, just to kind of bring this home, he nearly died for the work of Christ. So what this reminds us of is, yeah, we're, we're given Timothy as an example to follow. And we're given Epaphroditus as an example to follow. And in this world, God gives us other brothers and sisters as an example to follow. But we're following them because, what does it say? They're interested in the work of Christ. So not just, well, I'm going to follow you because you're a good coach, or I'm going to follow you because you're a great entrepreneur. We're following one another insofar as we are following Christ. So it's perfectly legitimate for you to say to another person, you should follow me because I'm following Christ. You should mimic my example because I'm mimicking the example of Christ. Don't, don't leave it with the first statement. Add the second. It's because we're following Christ. So beloved, stand firm. And as part of your call to stand firm, let other believers who are, who are already standing firm show you what it looks like to stand firm and to be faithful to Christ. Get involved in the life of a church. Don't, be a, don't make Christianity a spectator sport. Get connected. Get into a small group. Get into a discipleship group. Serve others. Get into a mentoring relationship. Invite people over and be a blessing to them because we are stronger together in Christ. <laughs>